0: Beer Me Radio. I'm your host Sarah Jane. Every week I will have a guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world from brewers, importers, educators. This will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional we will have something for you. So welcome back everybody. I'm very excited today. I have a guest Calling in um, from a little bit outside of Mexico City, we have Matias Veracruz Dutrenin. He is the founder of Cerveceria Monstro de Agua. Did I pronounce all of that correctly?
1: That is correct, hello.
0: Um, hello. So, um, Matias, thank you so much for taking time to call in. Um, and so you're you're outside of Mexico City, correct?
1: Uh, we're, we're actually in, in Mexico City which uh, to many is kind of surprising uh, because, you know, when you visit our brewery, uh, you feel outside the city, but we really are still within the bounds, within the legal bounds of Mexico City. (laughs) Well,
0: I've only been to Mexico City once, but from what I recall, it is massive. Yeah,
1: it's definitely a big city.
0: So I want to get into all kinds of things about your beer because you're making a really cool, fun product. And for those of you who listened, uh, to our previous episode, um, you are being imported by Be United, um, so this is a product that you can find throughout the U.S. But um, I want to start with you. Actually, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got into beer?
1: Yeah, sure. I guess I got into beer how how many people, uh, how many enthusiasts, which was basically I, I was very drawn. Uh, I remember I was doing a, a short trip in Europe uh, around 12 years ago. And I stayed a couple nights with a, with a friend of my cousin's who was from Uruguay living in Paris. And it turned out that he was making his own craft beer. He was doing his own homebrew. And at the time, I didn't even like beer. But I was super impressed that you could actually make in your own house a beverage that, that was sparkling. Uh, really was the gas that captured my first interest in beer. So when it's I got magic. back from that trip... Yeah, exactly. Um, and when and when I go back to Mexico from that trip, uh, the first thing I did was okay. I'm gonna go find a, a homebrew kit. You know, at the time I had really had no understanding whatsoever of fermentation in general. Uh, at the time, I remember I associated fermentation with 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 rotting. Like to me, they were similar concepts. And I found the kit. It was really difficult to do. Uh, At the time, it was very hard to find any ingredients for making beer in Mexico. Uh, But eventually got my hands Mm -hmm. on some in a very shady way. Uh, I mean, it was all legal. I bought it off uh, basically like an eBay kind of a page. But, you know, I had to go to like this guy's apartment to pick it up. And it was all like very weird and very... You know, it, it was just strange. You know, I, I was like, when you when you think about what these ingredients actually are, you would think you could buy them anywhere. Right. Uh, it's just barley and, and hops. So, you know, that's how I, yeah. I got interested in the concept of making beer. Uh, I, I guess I skipped a little bit about me. So I'm I'm from Mexico City myself. Uh, I may have a, a, a weird accent and, and generally I, I mentioned that straight off, which is I I grew up in England. I, I lived there for four years when I was very young. So that kind of that's where I learned my English and then I came back to mm-hmm. Mexico. So I lived there from seven to eleven, came back to Mexico uh, and then went to a kind of a bicultural school here in Mexico. So, so I kept my English, but the accent has gone kind of uh, for some people, it's hard to catch exactly where it's from. Um, so that's uh, my earlier years. Uh, I studied economics and math uh, at, at university. And then I went to UCLA to do my my well, I, I was studying for my Ph.D. there. Uh, s- s- right when mm-hmm. I got into making beer, so you know those two things came together, and and now I I'm a full time brewer. I well you know not a brewer. I'm a, well I have this company. I have Monstro. That Why. I'm the I'm the founder and one of the founders and CEO. Uh, and mm-hmm. I've been doing that for mm-hmm. the last basically the last nine years of my life. It's been it's been it's been a ride. And now I can say that I really do like beer. Uh, it's not I'm not just attracted by the gas. <laughs>
0: Not just not just the uh, the fermentation process, right? So how did how did this brewery come to be? You're you're part of a, a pretty cool collective.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I guess towards the end of uh, 2011, uh, we were getting. Cl- uh, I was at, at university uh, here in Mexico City at the and I had several friends. Well, we I had my friends from university that also became really good friends from many of my other friends that didn't come to the same university as me, uh, from my high school mm-hmm. friends. And we were now kind of like a big group of friends. But we all kind of had this feeling, especially me, that when we finished university, even if we weren't going to the same universities, life would lead us down paths that would probably lead us away from each other. And I started to feel a lot of nostalgia. And we talked about how we could find a way that we could kind of stick together. So we decided to create a a collective uh, Mm -hmm. called Mm -hmm. Colectivo a Xolote from which we could collaborate on our personal projects. Uh, At that time, I had made beer twice in my life, so we could say I had that hobby. And we were brainstorming about all the different projects we could collaborate on. And originally, we really wanted to work on mostly like hydropon, like growing... Herbs, vegetables, fruit, hydroponically, buying a huge plot of land where we could start working and growing stuff and and from there develop other projects. And one of those other projects we mentioned we could carry out was making beer. Uh, Fast forward in time and basically, um, I mean, I took it really seriously. And for the first six years, it's really the only project we actually collaborated on. I remember we we had a first meeting uh, at at the end of the year uh, in December. And I remember flying back, I, I, I'd, I was already in LA, uh, I was just starting my PhD, I was in my first quarter, uh, or actually just finished uh, my first quarter. And, um, and on the flight back, I remember I was like reading, like, but with a lot of detail, uh, John Palmer's book on how to brew, and designed our, our first recipe, which is really the, the first beer we started selling, and it's our most selling beer, which is uh, Blanca de Maguey. So that's kind of how it and all is started. That,
0: that's the beer with citrus and coriander?
1: Exactly. It's an agave white tail uh, made with mm-hmm. uh, agave sap, uh, orange, bitter orange zest, and coriander seed.
0: Okay. So you had mentioned a little bit ago that the name of your collective, Achalote, Achalotl, I'm so sorry. Achelotl, right. No, no, Achalote
1: is actually um, correct. They, they, they're both correct. I'll explain why.
0: Oh, OK. But why is, why is the, that salamander, the little sea creature, why is that significant?
1: Right. So uh, I guess a, a, an important point to point out about the collective is that, yes, we wanted to stay together, but the focus of our productive projects, because really we, the intention was that we were going to do productive projects with this collective, was that really our main goal was we wanted to work with farmers and specifically we were interested in in helping them develop capacities, so in in small farmer capacity building and empowerment. I mean, that's relevant because at the beginning we really chose this salamander, the Mexican salamander, which in Aztec or Nahuatl, which is the Aztec language, is called axolotl and it literally means water monster. The composition of the word asholotul is actually atl, which is one word, it means water, and Sholotl, which means dog, monster, and a couple other things. We, we chose uh, this salamander as a symbol because the Mexican salamander, uh, and, and, it, and it really is different to all other salamanders, is a species that you can only find in Mexico City. And it has the particularity that it remains in its infant stage for all its life, and that's why it has this crest coming out of its head. It's uh, that crest. All salamanders have it when they're uh, living in the water. But salamanders, all other varieties of salamanders eventually leave the water and become just regular salamanders. Whereas Mm. the one from Mexico City never abandons this infant stage. So that's one interesting thing. And it's one thing that always called the attention of, of the Aztecs. But actually, what's more interesting about this animal is... Well, I, I, from what I just mentioned, basically, it's a symbol of Mexico. So it's, it's, in Mexico, people are very fond of the Asholotl and they are more and more every day. But then it's also a, a symbol of sustainability for an ironic reason. It's a symbol of sustainability because it's an endangered species. It's basically unavoidable that it will go extinct in nature. So there will always be Asholotls living in, in, in tanks as pets or for research purposes, but it's basically going to go extinct in nature. And, and that's something that for us was really, very relevant and that connects with the third point, which is the axolotl is also a symbol of regeneration. Axolotls can regrow any parts of their body, so if you cut its arm off, it'll grow back. That's surprising enough, it's more than a lizard can do. But then if you oh, yeah. if you cut a piece of its lung, its brain, its heart, it will regrow those two. So for that reason, it's uh, it's an animal that that's been you know very relevant. well, the Aztecs were very amazed by it and they saw it, they thought that maybe even if you ate it, you would get these regenerative powers. But then obviously the the Spaniards or the conquerors arrived and they were also very amazed by this strange animal. And now that's why I'm saying it, it will definitely not go extinct. It's now a popular pet, but mostly it's like it's just so relevant for research purposes that it will always be there. But for us, it's a symbol of regenerative agriculture, right? And that puts us right back to what I was talking about, the collective. Uh, when we say we were interested in the, the in the capacity building and empowerment of small farmers, in particular, we were really interested in those farmers that were interested in or already working with agroecological or regenerative practices. And we can talk a little bit more of, about rege- what regenerative agriculture is, if you'd like, in a moment or whenever. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's already a known concept, but uh, for us, it was... Basically, we chose this salamander because it represented these three things. That was really the, the the inspiration, and and all the projects that we were doing from the collective had to in some way connect to this.
0: Okay, tenacious.
1: Tenacious.
0: Yeah, they don't they don't give up. <laughs> so you know, as your and I, I definitely want to get into the sustainable efforts, but you know, as your brewery continued to grow and. You know, what were some factors that went into the decision making of expanding um, into the U.S. market and into other markets? And, you know, what what has been it's such a hard decision for American breweries and and for any brewery is, you know, hey, are we going to just kind of service our local market and become kind of a cult following that people travel to? Are we going to go to other markets? Are we going to go overseas? You know, it's there's a lot of questions, a lot of factors that go into those kinds of decisions. So what were what were some of the the factors that helped you to kind of figure out where your brand would go?
1: So, I mean, certainly uh, th- th- there's many things <laughs> to consider here. Uh, all, I mean, everything mm-hmm. you're saying makes perfect sense. Uh, but we got to think about how what the Mexican beer scene is. Uh, and basically, it's I would say at least twenty years behind, right? or or maybe not at least, but close to twenty years behind. Uh, and I don't okay. say it in a negative way in just it's what it is, right? the The big craft beer movement in the world really, I would say, started in the USA. Uh, I mean, the modern mm-hmm. car, craft beer movement. Uh, and obviously Mexico has been hugely impacted by it. but there are fundamental differences in the competitive legislation, like how firms can compete. And there's many differences that make it, you know, the paths follow very different. Well, the history to follow very different paths. So when we started, when we started Monstro D'Agua, almost with the specific project of Monstro D'Agua, which was a little over eight years ago, there were uh, at most fifty craft breweries in Mexico, 50, five zero. And they were all basically replicating European styles. So they hadn't even gotten into IPAs yet, right? And they were all obviously using completely, well, it's not obvious actually, but they were all using imported malt, imported hops, imported yeast, and local water, of course. So when we started, we decided, I mean, I, I was living in LA, and at that time, <clears throat> I'm not sure exactly what the data point is, but there was probably close to 2,000 or more breweries in the US. So the craft beer movement was already way on its way. Right. And IPAs were a big thing. And actually, you could sense how, how breweries were going to start going into uh, different directions uh, from the typical IPA and starting to go more towards uh, flavor and aroma hops, hop additions and kind of leaving behind like the typical West Coast IPA, let's say. Uh, so when, when <laughs> we saw this, I said, well, you know, what, what I'm really interested in doing in Mexico is not like continuing to make a beer that's made in Mexico, but not from Mexico. It's I'm really interested in making beers that are made with Mexican ingredients. And to me, it was obvious, uh, which which it ended up not being, uh, but but I thought it was obvious that that was a great idea because I could see the U.S. You wanted, market. You
0: wanted your beers to have a, a very clear sense of place.
1: Yeah. So, But I wanted them to have a very clear sense of place. But with the restriction, that sense of place had to be based on local ingredients. And by local, I mean like from okay. the country, right? Because I mean, it's a big country and, mm-hmm. and that was fine. Like if they come from Passage. the north or the south, that's fine. But they have to be from Mexico. And I thought that was going to be an amazing idea because, you know, the first time I made a beer, uh, it didn't go too well. Like it fermented perfectly, but we didn't get any gas in it. Uh, well, I didn't manage to get any gas in it. It was a homebrew. Second time... I understood right before I brewed the beer, I was like, why the hell can I get the gas in it? So I, you know, I read, like I tried to go a little deeper into it. And that was when I finally understood that all that yeast does is convert sugar into alcohol. Well, it does other stuff, but fundamentally, that's its role, right? So when I realized that, I asked myself, why did I have to go to this weird guy's apartment to buy my, my barley? Well, my malted barley, which again, at the time to me was a very abstract thing. When I can, you know, honey has sugar and you can buy that at the market in Mexico or agave syrup has honey, uh, has sugar in it and you can buy it anywhere. Uh, so, you know, I, that that kind of inspired me. I was like, I want to go buy my ingredients at the market. Um, so to me, that was like, first I was like, oh, am I like a super genius and just discovered a great idea? And no, I like... Took 10 minutes to go into blogs and it was very quickly, you could see online that in all these uh, blogs on the internet, online in the US, people were making crazy beers. Uh, A little later on, I even ran into Dogfish Head and then I was like, oh my God, I'm like the least original person in the world. Um, yeah. So <laughs> Dogfish
0: has that effect on people <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was
1: like, oh my god I thought I was like doing all these crazy new things um, But the point being was that When we started developing our beers We had this very rooted idea That we wanted them to represent the Mexican terroir uh, But also, I was kind of trying to cater to the American market I thought that if we could make beers That would be interesting to the U.S. Uh, consumer then it would be very easy for Mexicans to be interested in our beers. And that's where I go to where I was saying before that I thought it was obvious, but it ended up not being. Truth is that it's been really hard uh, for us to get uh, the, the average Mexican consumer really hyped about our beer. I mean, there's many Mexicans that love our beer, but it's a very hard thing because Mexican beer culture is based on industrial beer. Worldwide, the most exported beer is industrial Mexican beer. There's this worldwide idea,
0: Equis, Pacifico, we,
1: uh, Modelo and mm-hmm. all of them, right, and Sol. And, and there's this generalized idea, and it's very rooted in Mexico, that Mexican industrial beer is amazing, like that it's the best quality beer in the world. Mexicans think that their, their industrial beer is amazing. And not only do they think it's amazing, but it's super cheap. So as a craft beer producer you're competing against a culture that is completely opposite to what the the product you're offering you're offering flavors and for sure you're offering a product that's more expensive and that meets a lot of resistance and mm-hmm. so you know uh we started you know feeding off of basically craft beer enthusiasts who had already developed the flavor you know the flavor They developed interest for new flavors, right? Uh, So they've gone from like, you know, from the typical industrial beer to maybe a brown ale. And then they were like, oh, you know, so, and again, uh, they hadn't even tried IPAs at this time. So so, so it it was really hard. And today, to the day, like we're definitely way more positioned uh, in people's minds than we were eight years ago. And it's still very hard. And we still get all the time like this idea that, oh, I love this beer, but it's a little expensive. And, and it's something we're fighting consumers against all the time. And that takes to your question, and, and it was a big introduction, but we've always wanted to export. Uh, but really, uh, Be United found us in Mexico, uh, and they, they seemed really interested in our product, and they seemed to really understand this idea that I've been saying about, that we didn't just want to make beer in Mexico, but we really wanted to represent the Mexican terroir. And there really is, today, there are over uh, 1,200 breweries in Mexico, right? So it's been a huge growth. Uh, There's about 8,000 in in the U.S., you know, so uh, my rule of thumb is if you divide by three, you get somewhere close to what, what the Mexican market size is relative to the U.S., so, you know, I think there's still space for another 2,000 breweries at least in Mexico. Yeah. But, you know, there's 1,200 and it's still the same truth that basically all Mexican craft beer is made with imported ingredients. Of our beers, we over 50% of our ingredients are grown in Mexico. Even today, we're still like a very unique brewery and we're definitely having a, a better time at, at selling our beer in Mexico because consumers are... Well, there's more craft beer consumers, so that's helping. And then restaurants where the chefs are really interested in in traceability of their ingredients mm-hmm. are actually really interested in our beer, because we're not just offering authentic flavors, but we're also offering traceability. You know we know where where our agave comes from, we know where our orange comes from, We know where our barley comes from, you know and we, we're in contact with our producers. And that's something uh, that chefs are very interested in and, and a growing number of them each time, right? Uh, it's kind of a, yeah. uh, something that's becoming. But in the U.S., uh, when the United found us, you know, they saw these things like the Chefsy in our beers. And they thought that that was perfect for the U.S. market because, again, most breweries in Mexico, they're not just using imported ingredients, but they're also basically replicating imported styles. So they were like, we, yeah. we're not interested in, in importing a Mexican West Coast IPA. Right. I mean, if, we, if you want a mm-hmm. good IPA, you better buy one that was brewed locally. It's going to be way more fresh. So they were really interested in all these different ingredients we're using. And it turns out that it seems like that it's working well. Like the the U.S. consumers are much more excited about our beers in some sense than than, than Mexicans. On average, I insist, there's many Mexicans Mm -hmm. that love our beers, but the U.S. average consumer understands our product better. From the get go. Yeah,
0: I mean, you all, I mean, you've created beers with ingredients definitely local to where you are, but also deeply, deeply rooted in. Mexican cuisine. I mean, you're using agave, you're using blue corn, you've got the citrus. I mean, you're you're definitely honing in on those roots and, you know, those really key ingredients to the cuisine. Now, something else that I, that I know that, you know, a lot of American consumers really value is sustainability. And this is a huge pillar for you all.
1: Definitely. Our first introduction to the U.S. market was, you know, right when the pandemic was starting. So obviously that wasn't great. Uh, But even so, it's been going well. And I think that that right now we're still really riding on the interesting flavors we have to show. But I don't feel like uh, people have a a good sense of all our sustainability efforts. Uh, And that's something we're going to try and and improve our communication uh, so that people can really see. Because I think what we're doing as far as uh, our sustainability efforts is really... Uh, quite unique, not just for the Mexican market but for the world market, uh, and that takes to this idea of regeneration.
0: So, what are some of the what are some of the practices that you do that are that are not quite as common?
1: Let's start uh, by analyzing the the average beer. Let's think about the Reinheitsgebot, right? So, it's the the German purity laws say that you can only make beer with four ingredients, right? Which is water, malted barley or some form of a malted cereal, uh, yeast and hops. So in Mexico, uh, like I said, uh, well, I had said that, hops, you can't grow hops, really. It's very hard to, to, to mm-hmm. do it productively because we don't have enough hours of light at any time of the year. Yeast, of course, you can grow yeast, although no one's really doing it commercially. Uh, Water, you can for sure get, but that's, you know, obvious, and then malt. So, like, why can't a craft brewery get malt in Mexico? Uh, That's actually an interesting question because, you know, there's a lot of beer being made here, and that's the thing. There's over 350 hectares that are being used to produce barley in Mexico, and all that barley is then transformed into malt, but the way in which that is done is there's a big accumulator uh, and this accumulator, it's, it's basically a huge warehouse that receives all the producers and this accumulator will select the barley that is apt for brewing, for malting, and all the other barley will be used to feed uh, cows or, or pigs or, or, or chickens, right? So when you look mm-hmm. at this, this uh, value chain, you realize that we're talking about over 350 hectares that are being grown by a monoculture, right? And monocultures are at the base of the problem that we have with global warming. Okay, so so what I what do I do? What do I mean with that? So a monoculture refers to a big extension of land where you just grow one uh, one crop. So barley, for example, or corn. You know, mm-hmm. um, and the problem with these processes is that uh monocultures are very prone to pest to pests uh why is this well think about it like this if 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 you have a field full of the same variety of barley and the pest comes along and hits one of the plants if it's successful if if it's a pest that happens to to really uh, give barley a a hard time then it's not just going to give one plant a hard time it's going to give Every single individual in that field a hard time, so that generates and this is
0: and this is incredibly damaging to the soil as well.
1: Of course, so there's a big pressure there in monocultures to use pesticides, right? Because mm-hmm. you know these these monocultures are weak, so you use the, the pesticides. The pesticides are you know usually it's called Roundup, and these are obviously made with very carcinogenic chemicals. Uh, Glysofit is the fundamental one there. Uh, in, in Roundup and it's very detrimental to soil. So when you use these pesticides, you're not just killing these pests or weeds, but you're also killing all the microorganisms that give earth life. And when earth is alive, it has the capacity to sequester carbon. When earth becomes dust, which is what, what happens when you, when you use pesticides and then you do tilling and then you use pesticides again and you do tilling again, when you repeat this process over and over again, you're eventually stripping all the earth, not just of its minerals, but of its life, and you're turning fertile (coughs) soil into dust, and dust cannot sequester carbon. So right now there's a very scary data that says that at the rate, so business as usual, at the rate at which we are desertifying the planet, and by desertifying I mean turning fertile soil into dust, we have 60 years left of fertile soil in the planet, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 yep. less mu- less so each time, right? Um, mm-hmm. But what's interesting is is the is the opposite, which is if we increase the amount of fertile soil there is on on the planet at a rate of point forty one percent every year, it would take thirty years for us to have sequestered all of the human race's CO two legacy, all of the CO two that we have emitted as a race, as the human race would be in the ground in 30 years if we did this. So this goes back to, so what do I mean by regenerative uh, agriculture? Regenerative agriculture refers to production of food, but in a way that instead of desertifying the soil, you're creating or fortifying or regenerating the soil. So how is this done? First, not growing from monocultures, right? But if you make beer with just those four ingredients we just talked about, there's no way out of this. You're always going to have to be depending on monocultures or maybe not from monocultures. You may be able to get your barley from a place that doesn't grow it in a monoculture, but then it's going to be way more expensive. Right. So that really all the pressures there are for these uh, for barley to be grown in monocultures. So the way we looked at it is, well, we're living in Mexico, which is one of the most biodiverse regions of the world. It's also one of the most diverse regions of the world, culturally speaking. And the intersection of this, these two just amplify the effect. The more diverse a region is culturally, the more diverse it tends to be, biologically speaking, right? Uh, so we said, yeah. how can we be making a Mexican beer that just has these four ingredients? If we wanna maintain the Mexican diversity, then we gotta foster and use the Mexican diversity. And that's why over the last five years, we've developed over 100 styles of beer that showcase over 100 ingredients that are grown in me- Mexico with re- regenerative practices. And basically where our ingredients come from, and with the barley, we're working on that. And I can go a little bit into that in a minute. But uh, with all the other stuff, so our oranges, our coriander, all these other, well, we use a ton of ingredients. In the beers that we have available in the US, we use prickly pear, we use agave, we use uh, the orange, we use uh, lemon balm, we use ginger, we use uh, lemongrass, and all these ingredients are coming from edible forests. Uh, edible forests is basically imagine that uh, you have uh, in a plot, instead of just growing your monoculture, you're growing maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 different species of plants. And you're uh, taking advantage of the synergies that can exist amongst them. But the first synergy, and the most important, is that because you have diversity, you're not going to get this problem where if one plant has a pest, then all the others will have it. That won't happen because usually yeah. if a pest affects the oranges, it's very unlikely that that same exact pest will affect the ginger, right? So that gives And usually if, if, you're, if you
0: have that kind of diversity within the plants, you've got some plants that actually act as pest control for other plants.
1: Certainly, exactly. In, in these mm-hmm. uh, edible forests, you might even have plants that you, that you grow just for that purpose. Like, this is a plant that yeah. attracts these pests, so I'm going to grow a couple of these all over so that all the pests hit them and leave our crops, you know, fine. Uh, and this goes to, you know, some people, if they hear this, they may be like, oh, so basically they're using organic ingredients. And I want to say this explicitly. No, it's not, it's, not, it's not just about not using chemicals. It's about promoting diversity. Mm-hmm. And organic does not imply that. So here's a perfect example. You could tear down the whole La Candona uh, jungle, which is the, the rainforest that we have in Mexico in the south, in Chiapas. It's called the, the mm-hmm. La Candona jungle, right? You could tear down as many acres of you want of that, and just grow bananas organically. So you would have a monoculture of bananas that was was grown where you tore down a jungle. And that could be organic, maybe even certified, right? But that goes completely against the idea of diversity. And mm-hmm. a, and that's you know a, a point that I think it's important in making. It's yes, we we're looking for ingredients that that are not grown with pesticides or with fertilizers, chemical fertilizers and pesticides, but also that are promoting diversity. And that's to yeah. us the only way we can promote the diversity of of our terroir. Not just use it, but and promote it.
0: My I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. Uh, Listeners out there, if you are interested in biodiversity and especially biodynamic agriculture, pick up anything by Rudolf Steiner, a uh, philosopher who kind of pioneered the the biodynamic agriculture works. It's definitely, definitely worth a, a look.
1: Definitely <laughs> worth a look. And whilst you're at it, I'll also mention uh, that it's worth to t- There's a documentary. Uh, it was available on Netflix. I'm guessing it still is called Kiss the Ground. <coughs> kiss the ground and it talks all about uh regenerative agriculture i think it's a must see because really within our lifetime we are going to experience a cataclysm where either it all goes to hell or we Mm -hmm. regenerate our ecosystems and that takes us back to the asholotl right uh the asholotl Mm -hmm. many people think it's think it's going extinct because the locals eat it or something here in mexico but the reality is it's going extinct because Mexico City used to be a huge lake and that was an ecosystem. And now there's no water yeah. left. Now where there was a lake, there's buildings. And this animal is going extinct because its ecosystem is going extinct. You know, so again, this goes back to this idea that what we really want to do is regenerate our ecosystems, but we don't just want to do that ourselves. We want to develop the capacities and empower the people that are living in these areas. You know, we're living here in the cities, but all the skirts of the cities are, you know, were once pristine uh, uh, ecosystems that are now in great danger, just as the ecosystems that used to be in the cities. And the people living there are living in poverty traps, you know, so we're trying to find a way to really solve that problem.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And we're we're coming close to time here. But for those of you listening, definitely where you can Ah, uh, check out your market um, for this beer. You know, as you can hear, it has an amazing story, and you know, definitely check out um, "Kiss the Ground." I've, I've seen bits and pieces of it, and it is really impactful. Mm-hmm. Matthias, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
1: No, I, I, I thank you for for taking the time to uh, listening to all the stuff we're doing and sharing with the public. Uh, we're really excited to be. Uh, in the U.S. We've received great feedback from people there and also people coming here uh, to Mexico where they try our beer here and just cheering us on all the time. And we're really grateful for that.
0: Yes, go to Mexico. If there is anything you take away from this show, go to Mexico. Some of the most amazing, stunning cities in the world are in Mexico. I, I can't I can't preach that enough. <laughs> go to Puebla, go to Oaxaca, go to Mexico City, go to Mexico.
1: <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's great food. I, I would say if there's something you take from the show is come to Mexico. But if you can't, then buy Monstro Lava, or even if you can uh, and you'll get to taste the, the flavors of, of this Mexican terroir, um, which are really, really yes. quite something.
0: Perfect. Perfectly said. Uh, well, everyone, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Beer Me Radio. Uh, reach out on Instagram at Beer Me Radio. Shoot us an email, beermeradio at gmail.com. Like, follow, subscribe. Give us all those stars on you know, anywhere you get your podcast. Um, but we will catch you all later. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.